0: Also remember, when you buy Ochenta's audiobooks, you're directly supporting our independent audio series productions. So find Atlas Lingue, the layers of language behind everyday life, on Libro.fm, Apple Books, Google Play, Storytel, BookBeat, and on your favorite audiobooks app. Whenever I go to the grocery store, I remember how as a kid, and I'm sure many can relate, my absolute favorite aisle was the
2: cereal aisle. The cereal aisle is, you know, it blows your mind. It's crazy how many different cereals there are, and it would appear that there's an endless supply of them as well.
0: This is Gustav Peebles. He specializes in economic anthropology. And he loves the cereal
2: aisle as well, but for a slightly different reason. Kids often as a result, when they go to a grocery store when they're very young, they often say, well, I want that, 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 and that. And you see parents sort of explaining to them in delicate ways, like, well, you can't have it all. And they start learning that the world which presents itself to them as abundant is somehow infected with scarcity, and that even though it looks like you could grab it from the nearest tree, well, there's I could have 16 types of cereal in my house. Why do I have to only have one?
0: I remember when I was a child, there was something so special about seeing so many different varieties of cereal, and in so many colorful boxes with cartoon characters and the promise of toys inside and lots of fun games and trivia on the back. Nowadays, the only cereal I buy is granola and raw oats. I know, boring, I'm sorry. But now I realize that my perception of what it means to do my grocery shopping is totally different. Because, well, I'm no longer a child. And that becomes painfully clear when I'm budgeting for things that as a kid I had no idea were that expensive. Like cheese. Cheese. Welcome to Atlas Lingue. In this season, we're exploring the subtle, and sometimes not so subtle, ways in which we communicate the broad subjects that define our everyday lives. I'm your host, Luis Lopez, and like everyone else, I learned how to talk about the big bucks. Cash, coin, gold, mula, dinero, plata, or whatever you call it. That's why today we're going to talk about the language of money, how it works, how we talk about it, and what it says about ourselves.
2: And so we would like to not discuss our monetary differences because that would then undermine our uh, power in society. Money is a very emotional
3: topic and and subject, even though it's something that's, like you said, we use every day and is super practical and like really needed. And ultimately, money is this tool that we use in our lives all the time, every day.
1: We need to, I think, ask ourselves, what is taboo about money? Because in general, yes, it's been discouraged to talk about. Like when we grow up, at least in my household, it was a very tense conversation to have around money because there was a lack of money.
0: Most of the time, there's a lack of formal education around money which in turn makes it a taboo topic that you mostly only learn about at home, and eventually through first-hand experience. For example, I used to feel a lot clumsier when talking about money, like it's a foreign language that I'm far from fluent in. Whenever I've done things like file my taxes, start a retirement fund, get insurance, I've done them very carefully, afraid to make a mistake along the way.
1: Sometimes we don't want to talk about it because we don't want to reveal what we may not have. There's shame. There's guilt around that.
0: That's Jennifer Hemphill, a Latina money mentor that helps Latinx communities in the U.S. to learn financial education. She's also the host of the podcast, Her Dinero Matters.
1: I teach about simplifying money. I teach about the impact of our money stories. In in other words, our upbringing and how that has an impact on how we perceive money, how we manage money. The language of money, I think it starts at home. You start learning it in your household. Uh, It's also impacted by culture, by your surroundings, what that person is exposed to. Maybe you go to a school that teaches financial literacy.
0: Because money is something you learn about predominantly from personal experience, everyone's way of speaking its language is slightly different.
1: When you speak a financial language, it needs to be multilingual because you're talking to individuals, you're talking to different communities, you're talking to different cultures, and we need to take those things into account, especially when it comes to money. if We have a lot of shame if we're having some struggles around money. We want to be able to know that we're not alone. And to be able to know we're not alone, someone needs to tell us, share a story, share an occurrence, an event in their life that they can connect to. It's about connection.
0: Many of us grew up in households where our parents would often say, we can't afford that or we don't need that. And sometimes when we grow up and start being more independent and even more financially successful, we keep that mentality, that money story that we learn from our family
1: Those money skills of saving more, spending less, get out of debt are important, but it's also important to understand your money stories. It's also important to understand your mindset, where your mindset is around money, because if that past money story, if you're continuing to live it, you're not going to progress. But how, how will you know if you're not
0: aware of that? In fact, the way we behave around money and debts can vary widely from one culture to another. And as you may have heard, there was a certain Scandinavian country that recently made the rounds on social media for, allegedly, not feeding their guests at home? Let's see what our anthropologist Gustav, who's half-Swedish by the way, has to say about that.
2: I recently um, actually posted a, a Twitter thread about um, this uh, in Sweden because there was a debate about whether kids should get uh, fed. If kids who are visiting your house on a play date, do they get fed or not? <laughs> and, right. It was called hashtag Swedengate.
0: For those who didn't catch it, hashtag Swedengate started when a few internet users shared their experiences as guests in a Swedish home saying that they waited in a different room while the host family had dinner and this naturally spawned all sorts of outrage
2: and memes and i chimed in and it it got a lot of got a few hundred retweets because there's this notion of what would a debtless community look like and you know you don't want interpersonal debts in the swedish case there's often debt through the state is understood and okay but often debts in between people um is considered sort of taboo so for example you know they will um you know often uh, like so just to distinguish it like so in america if you go out to lunch with a friend you tend to split it 50 50 and not pay attention well you had the filet mignon and i had the salad but in sweden um it'll very much be like well i had the salad so i only owe x and they calculate it very carefully and that's not because they're being cheap a lot of outsiders think it's because they're being cheap and stingy But it's really a sense of independence that can come through being debtless.
0: You know, as someone who grew up in a Mexican household where people lovingly joke that guests stay for dinner whether they want to or not, I must admit I also found the whole Swedengate thing kind of at odds with how I was raised. But it felt a little weird to see people dunking on them when I was sure there was clearly a cultural difference being ignored here. And it's not like no house guests ever get fed in Sweden, by the way. Being debtless with those around you is simply a bigger deal there. But in any case, no matter your culture, learning financial vocabulary can be hard. But you have to start somewhere. Maybe with the most basic words. Back to Jennifer.
1: but one that is common that it doesn't get lost in translation because I think it's common enough. is like, let's say uh, in, in Espanol, budget is es presupuesto, right? So we understand what that is, but if that person has never done what we call a traditional budget, what we think of, let's say, an Excel spreadsheet, we need to explain the concept. We need to explain what it is because we also have to understand that they may have in their own way done budgeting. It may be not the traditional way. It may be just simple like you, they get paid, you pay the bills, and then the remaining money they just use for their daily needs.
0: True. We've all done budgeting in one way or another. Just not always in the way we might feel like we're supposed to, meaning with organized and detailed spreadsheets. And while these tools might not be for everyone, they may help communicate your personal finances to yourself much more effectively. Of course, budget is one of the easier words to get, even for clumsier money speakers like myself. So how about a harder one?
1: But there's also other technical terms, like, I never say it right in English, amortization.
0: Uh, amorti what?
1: That's a very technical term. And so for someone that doesn't know what amortization is, it's just basically that period of time that you're paying off debt and regular installment.
0: Oh, see, that makes it a lot easier to understand. Like when I bought a couch last year and finished paying it off in six months. But finance news isn't always easy to follow, precisely because it uses so much terminology that can feel alienating to anyone who isn't an economics major. Fortunately, things can be a little easier to get if you find the right people. And by that, I mean Economía para la People, a project founded by three Colombian finance journalists who wanted to make learning about the economy a lot easier for everyone.
4: Yo creo que en el de... We listen to economic terms in our day-to-day lives, but really learning them can be quite hard.
0: That's Valerie Fuentes, one of three co-founders of Economía para la People, Our producer, Chiara Santella, dubbed her voice.
4: I think that experts and the people that we've allowed to lead these discussions have forgotten to actually talk to the people, to speak in simple terms. They must remember that they're also citizens like everyone else, and they didn't have all their technical knowledge before they went to college. So the great challenge these experts have is to communicate on these topics and to really bring people into the conversation, Because in the end, it's relevant to people.
0: The project hosts content for Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. The journalists break down economic issues, especially newsworthy ones, such as a major tax reform or budget proposal, or presidential candidates' economic agendas during election years.
5: The project was born after we discovered that people weren't really understanding what was being proposed as a part of a tax reform.
0: This is María Camila González, who also co-founded the project, which they call La People for short. And our production coordinator Catalina Hoyos dubbed her voice. Angelica Gomez, whom we didn't get a chance to talk to in this interview, is the third member of the trio. Basically,
5: we said- So basically we said, there's a Ministry of Finance that's presenting a law proposal that will go through Congress, and people are taking to the streets and demanding things that aren't really in the text of the law. And we see that there's a lot of disinformation.
0: So that's when they decided they wanted to reach a population that they thought needed this information the most. People their age.
5: We understand the technical language because we're professionals, but we're also young and we have friends who aren't. And with them, we speak in a closer, more fun language. So what we're doing is translating. This really is a translation, and that's what we call it. We take what experts say and translate it into more colloquial terms, easier to understand, with no formal language. And also, we often use very Colombian words.
0: In fact, one of the issues these journalists often face is precisely what Colombian slang words to use. And in what context. Because they want to use current terms. So they don't come across as the how-do-you-do-fellow-kids meme. But they also want to use well-known words that won't alienate much of their audience. For example, one of their favorite words to use is paila.
5: It's a word that's used when you want to say that everything's terrible, basically. But it's a very colloquial, very Colombian term. Like, eso está repaila, which means something like, that sucks. And one of our posts
4: starts with the question, how pila or how good are your taxes? Basically, I think our success comes from us being able to explain current topics that people might hear about in traditional news media, and then later search for la people to understand them in simple terms, as if explaining them to a younger cousin.
0: That's Valerie again, and the thing that makes it clear that la people is successful is…
4: Many well-known experts from the business and finance sector share content, and I think it's their way of getting off the hook, really, and saying, here's an explanation in very casual terms of this topic that I have trouble explaining in a more relaxed way.
0: So, of course, linking money-related words to our own lives, as well as finding good sources that can help us translate them to simpler terms, are great ways of making sense of them but perhaps the most important way we learn to speak about money is with hands-on practice.
3: Knowing and understanding money and managing your money is a skill that you learn. Like, no one's born (laughs) having the skill of managing money. It's a very kind of something that's been created, like man-made kind of concept. So it's just a skill that you learn. This is Anna Mayfield,
0: a money mentor and wealth educator living in Lisbon. She says, understanding money is a skill not unlike learning a language. As in, you have to learn some basics before you're able to read a full novel or an academic article. For example, let's think about the use of credit cards versus tactile money. For me, it's happened
3: really, probably quite slowly, and now I'm like, oh, I spent, everything I spend is on on a card, really. I mean, I use more cash here because I moved to Lisbon, and a little bit more cash kind of requirements than in London. But um, I definitely kind of just anecdotally think it, it's way easier to not know where things are going and, and things to just add up as well, like little bits here and there. Because if you kind of physically had an amount of money in your wallet, you, yeah, like you said, you would see it going down automatically. Like, oh, okay, that I'll spend a little bit less of this because I can see it going down in my wallet. But if it's on a card, it can be way easier for it to be invisible you know, it can be very simple, perhaps, to check the apps or check online banking now. In, in general, things are in some ways easier, but it's also really easy not to check them and <laughs> not to know what's happening and, and where it's going and how things are, are adding
0: up as well. It's easy to forget how simply the format of your money, the way it presents itself to you, is already communicating so much. In fact, There's this common struggle of doing everything one can to avoid looking at a balance number in an account getting closer and closer to zero, almost as if not seeing it could somehow make the issue go away. But your cash dwindling in your wallet, that's much harder to ignore. Of course, a lot of us are quite used to credit and debit cards nowadays, as well as online banking from our computers and phones but I can only imagine how challenging it must have been for many people to get used to these technologies, let alone trust them with their money. Back to Gustav, our financial anthropologist, who just for fun will tell us an example of behavior around
2: money before there were any banks. If you think about it, jewelry is more prolific in societies without banks. Um, It's a way of protecting wealth on your person and having it with you at all times. And so the trust, it's an institutional trust thing, right? Like you, you don't have to trust anything outside of yourself, or maybe there's nothing there to trust, you know, because there's no banking infrastructure. And so you can put it on your body. My favorite example of this is, um, you know, in Denmark, often it's common to see men with an earring and women actually don't like to wear that many earrings in Denmark. And it turns out that Denmark is, of course, a, for centuries was an important sailing society. And men would carry an earring as a way of uh, having a credit for when they died abroad. They could know that they would have money for a Christian burial. So that's
0: one reason jewelry has such value, not only economically, but socially and culturally as well. It used to be a way to literally keep your assets on you. And, more importantly for the topic at hand, it was a way of saying, I have money. Such a strong way, in fact, that jewelry continues to have this meaning, even when we usually don't use it directly as payment for something anymore. Of course, banks have now been around for centuries, but it's fascinating to see how our relationship to them, and by consequence, to our own money, has changed over such a short period of time.
2: When I was a kid, now I'm dating myself, there were things called bankers' hours. And if you didn't make it to, and they would stay open later on Friday nights, they would often close at 3, 2.33 every other day of the week. But on Friday nights, they would stay open till 6 because they recognized that people needed money for the weekend.
0: While we're here, we should note that the way we talk about money has always been influenced by the type of infrastructure we have to spend and save it. Today, the bank is accessible from our computer screen, or an app, where you do digital banking. But a few decades ago, the word bank pretty much only referred to the physical place where you went to deposit or withdraw your money. And before 24-hour ATMs, that place closed at the end of the
2: day. And so there'd be long lines at five o'clock to get into the bank so they could have cash for the weekend. And all of that's gone now. Banks are 24-7, cash is 24-7. I mean, I I used to go out with friends when I was younger and they'd be like, ugh, I didn't make it to the bank this weekend. Can you pay for my beers this weekend (laughs) or something? You know.
0: It's so obvious to us now that our accounts are pretty much always accessible. But just a few decades ago, having money in your account, but no way to withdraw it, meant that essentially, you had no money, at least not until the bank reopened. Money back then had an added layer of scarcity that is mostly gone now. So now let's picture Gustav's scenario, but in 2022. You go to a bar with a friend, and the issue is no longer not having any cash. In fact, Depending on where you are, it's possible that actual, physical cash is nowhere to be seen. Except perhaps in a tip jar. So someone in this situation would likely say something like, I'll pay for the beers, just Venmo me. Or something to that effect, depending on where you live and what money-transferring app you use.
2: In Sweden, for example, it's Swish. You showed up in Sweden, you didn't have Swish, and there's actually a significant number of transactions that you then couldn't partake in.
0: You know, this reminds me of how understanding slang from younger generations can be pretty hard. And it feels like it just kind of developed out of nowhere and suddenly so many people are using it and you aren't. But it's even worse because it's about money. So it's not just about not feeling comfortable with Venmo or Swish as verbs. But about being left out of a growing chunk of the economy, and it's even more of a problem if you're not comfortable using a smartphone or simply don't have access to one.
2: My mom, who's Swedish, still doesn't even know how to use a cell phone. Um, and we have one for her, but she can't. She's scared of it. She won't touch it. You know, she thinks it's going to explode every time she touches it. And and she there's no way she could navigate Swish or her financial institutions through the bank apps and things like that.
0: In the past, there were people who didn't trust banks with their money, and felt more comfortable keeping it under the mattress. In other words, they felt that their money was safer if it was somewhere closer to them, if they could actually touch it. Banks of course became much more trusted and useful for most people. Then we moved on to credit cards, digital payment, etc., and here we are today. But now the language of money is asking us to take another step into the unknown, and for this a lot of us are honestly feeling like those people who kept their money under the mattress. So now that we've covered a few terms from Money Language 101, let's add another more advanced term to our financial glossary. Cryptocurrency. And to understand it, we need to add a few more terms. Blockchain. Verification, non fungible tokens or NFTs, Coinbase, Bitcoin, Ethereum,
3: and cryptocurrencies
2: on Monday. Cryptocurrencies there's are high... in free fall. Do I, I want to own it after, after policy, policy comes, comes and major all all crypto lenders start start buying it? Or, do or do I want a chance?
0: Okay, okay, I'm sorry. I know this can get a bit daunting. Especially since there's a whole very passionate culture that's grown around it.
2: In general, there's a suspicion of, you know, and there is even a denigrating term, crypto bros, and that it's it's somehow, you know, it, it, and it has been fraudulent, it's greedy, it's, you know, self-serving, it's not community-based, all these kinds of things. And I think there's lots of empirical data that shows that that's true.
0: Basically, cryptocurrency refers to any form of digital currency that is exchanged through a computer network that does not depend on a central authority such as a government or a bank.
2: All these things are tools, right? And if they're tools, that means that we can manipulate them.
0: Crypto is just the latest step in our long journey to speaking the language of money. The technology available to us has made us constantly adjust our behaviors around it and the way we talk about it.
2: I think it's really important to not cede the future of digital money to the crypto bros, which is what's effectively happening. There's like a whole swath of people who are just putting their heads in the sand or just critiquing it and dismissing it. Um, Whereas recognizing that it's coming, you know, it's coming and like, and how do you want to respond? Well, the Swedish central bank was pursuing the possibility of building a state sovereign digital currency, right? That's one response. There are plenty of other responses that, you know, people could come up with. But right now, the cutting edge is happening on the crypto grow wing of things. And, um, you know, I just like to sort of say to the people who are criticizing that endlessly, I'm like, well, what's your plan? Do you really think digital money is not here to stay?
0: But in all this talk about digital currencies, it's worth remembering that in its basic form, it all comes down to buying and selling which are, by the way, another two terms that we think we understand pretty well. But it's helpful to go over them once more.
2: We walk around thinking that they're different things instead of recognizing that they're two sides of the same coin. You go to the corner store to buy a banana. You say, I'm going to buy a banana. And the person behind the counter says, and I'm here to sell you the banana. But in actuality, you could easily equally say, I'm going to the corner store to sell a dollar. And he could say, I'm here at the corner store to buy a dollar. And that's what's happening in that exchange, right? That, um, but colloquially, we don't understand it that way.
0: I mean, it sounds obvious once you say it, right? But that dollar has value. And because it has value, you can sell it. You can sell it for a banana or for another currency, for example, or perhaps even for another dollar. Wait but a dollar is just worth a dollar, right? Well,
2: now it is, but it wasn't always that way. But in America in the 19th century, there were booklets that every you know vendor across America would have to pay for every three months and they would get renewed because people from Maryland, you know the state of Maryland would show up in the state of New York. They would have to be able to tell like, well, is this a legitimate bill or is it an illegitimate counterfeit bill? And they would constantly get updated booklets and because some Maryland banks were less trustworthy than New York banks, then as the further it would travel from Maryland, the higher the discount rate you would have to pay. So, in other words, it was just like what we call today, you know, currency bureaus, um, you know, across the world where you have to go trade your money in. Well, you could bring your Maryland dollar to a New York State, do- uh, you know, store to buy your banana. There were no bananas back then in New York, but, anyways, he would charge you a difference for that.
0: Yes. Before standardized currency, dollars from different U.S. states started losing value the further away they were spent from their place of origin. And as you can imagine, calculating those differences and keeping track of every currency's value, at a time with no digital calculators, by the way, must have been quite the task. So what Gustav is saying is that, while digital currencies are certainly shaking things up, we've essentially been here before in a context where money wasn't linked to a government or to a central
2: bank. So we're in a period of currency proliferation, which is also another way of saying that state sovereignty over money is being contested anew. I'm not gonna lie, thinking about
0: digital currency for too long can be a little overwhelming for me. But this is why it's helpful to remember that learning to comfortably talk about money It's just like learning a language. It's always a struggle at first when you're learning the basic vocabulary. And you might get some funny faces the first few times you start using it in a conversation, especially with people who are much more fluent than you are. But with enough time and dedication, it'll eventually start to click. And in the end, no matter how difficult a language is, there's always common ground similar words, names, or even basic gestures, such as pointing or waving. In any case, money has gone through so many transformations throughout history, but the way it works isn't entirely new. So the way we understand its language doesn't have to be either. Our cash has already been through this. And speaking of cash, look at all the money-related emojis we still use. Sure, there's a credit card emoji, but a lot of them still have to do with cash. Wads of bills with wings, and wads of dollars, yen, euros, and pounds, a golden coin, and a large bag with a giant money sign on it. Even though we use cash less and less, that symbol continues to represent our money visually, because it's the core of our system. Who knows, even in a potential completely cashless future, we might still use the word cash as a stand-in for money. Much like the word film, even though we mostly no longer watch actual celluloid film reels when we watch movies. In any case, all this talking about money has made me hungry. So the next time I go to the supermarket, I might just treat myself to not one, but two boxes of cereal. Thank you for listening to Atlas Lingue. If you're new to the series, we invite you to listen to our previous episodes, where we dive deep into translation and communication. I'm Luis Lopez, and it has been a pleasure to accompany you on this journey. Special thanks to Jennifer Hemphill, Hannah Mayfield, Gustav Peebles, Valerie Sifuentes, and Maria Camila Gonzalez. Atlas Lingue is an original production by Studio Ochenta. Our executive producer is Laurie Martinez. Sound design and production by Chiara Santella and me, Luis Lopez. With additional production assistance by Linnea Wingerup. Our production coordinator is Catalina Hoyos. For more information on Atlas Lingüe, a Studio Ochenta original series and podcast, go to ochenta.studio.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Our podcast is available on CastBox, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hi, it's Luis here, and I want to tell you about a show we've been listening to called The Pulso Podcast. There are a lot of podcasts that cover Latino culture and news, but this is one of the first we've heard that really utilizes the through line of history to provide more context and nuance to our stories. From the halls of Congress to the stages of Broadway, even the food we consider to be American, Latinos helped build this country. And we're not going anywhere. Yet most podcasts are still lacking Latino representation behind and in front of the mic. The pulso podcast is a latina hosted latina produced show that explores untold stories and unheard voices shaping the experiences of nuestra gente they've covered topics from beauty standards and gender equality to mental health and food origins and did you know that there is an official spanish version of the star spangled banner or that a team of mexican lawyers changed the future of segregation laws in the 50s to hear more Check out the Pulso podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.